This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I think theology is important. I think the tradition is important. But I also think it's important that we take other forms of human knowledge, other discoveries, and emerging insights about humanity and about the world into our theological conversation. We're talking about racism. We're talking about transgender realities. Like, how do we make sense of this from an informed, Christian, theologically sound perspective? You know, and I think we can. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Father Daniel Horan. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He's also a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter. He's the author of many books, including All God's Creatures, A Theology of Creation, and Postmodernity and Univocity, A Critical Account of Radical Orthodoxy and John Duns Scotus. Today we're going to be talking about his recent book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, A Contemporary Theological Anthropology. I should also note that I co-host with Dan a podcast called The Francis Effect. Father Daniel Horan, welcome to Things Not Seen. David, thank you. It's good to be with you. So there's so much about this book that I want to dig into and talk about, but I think probably for our listeners who may not have a technical theological background, we should start with some general terms. And so when we say that this is a book about theological anthropology, first of all, I just want to talk about what that term means, and then we'll get into some of the distinctions about what it means to say that this is a contemporary theological anthropology, those kinds of things. But let's start with that. When we say theological anthropology, what are we talking about? Yeah, great question. Um, It's very, very simple, in fact. What we're really talking about is how do we, from a theological perspective, within the Christian tradition, and that's the kind of theology I do, is Roman Catholic theology, that's my confessional tradition, that's my background, I'm a Catholic priest, a Franciscan friar, so that's my lens. So how, from that Christian theological perspective, do we understand the human person? What is What does it mean to be human? What are the dimensions that are distinctive or, for that sake, not distinctive about human existence, human being? It's basically just talking about the human person, right? Anthropology is anthropos, logos, this idea of talking about or studying the human person from a theological perspective. Well, so why would that be important? Why is that part of the God talk that we engage in? I mean, we should just be talking about Lord, Lord, right? I mean, we're insignificant in this conversation, aren't we? Uh, Jein in German, (laughs) yes and no. It depends on how you understand theology. So if you are kind of a strict Bartian, you know, a fan of Karl Barth, then what is what we should be doing is just Christology in effect, right? What we know about God is only knowable because of the incarnation. But the key there, and and I'm not a I'm not a Bartian, though I have tremendous respect for Karl Barth, is that the word became flesh and it became flesh in the form of the human person. And so you know, I'm much more a Ronarian for our listeners who are familiar with that. You know, Karl Rahner, a Jesuit theologian from the 20th century, deeply influential at the Second Vatican Council. One of the things he asks is, what 
you know, if we talk about God's word, God discloses God's self, God reveals, right? Revelation, God reveals God's self to us. He asks this question, what kind of hearer does Christianity anticipate? In other words, God made us with the capacity, as they say in Latin, capax day, with the capacity to receive God's revelation. And as Christians, we say, and this is, Bart would agree with me, that the fullness of divine revelation is a person named Jesus of Nazareth, that the word became flesh as Jesus of Nazareth, as a human person. Therefore, there is this capacity that we have as human beings for God's gift of self, God's self-disclosure, God's revelation, as it were. And so when we talk about God, you know, you use the same, we should be saying, Lord, Lord, by the way, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has something to say about that. And he's like, you'll be surprised. A lot of you who say, Lord, Lord, aren't going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. So that's just a cautionary tale. But you're right to say we should be talking about God, theologos, God talk. But I would contend, as I think Karl Rahner would certainly, and, and at least the Catholic Church in its document on divine revelation, De Verbum, contends, you, you can't talk about God without also implicitly talking about the human person because God discloses God's self to us precisely as human. And so when we think about then this question of the human person, we're not just thinking about a contemporary question. So it's not like there's been a turn to the human person. If I'm hearing you correctly, this has been a part of theological conversation from the earliest days of Christian theology. Is that a correct statement? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I think when we talk about a turn to the subject, a turn to the human there has been something of that following Western Enlightenment philosophy and its engagement by theologians and by the church. So there is certainly that. It has been instructive and insightful to, to turn to the human person. But you're right. I mean, from the very beginning, you know, this question of what does it mean to be human has been a persistent theme in the Christian tradition. So, you know, there have been several themes that make up theological anthropology classically. One is and they're, they're all based on claims. They get reduced in a sense, and understandably so, to claim. So we claim, for instance, that human beings are created imago Dei in the image or image and likeness of God. That's a claim. Well, where does that come from? What does that mean? These are questions that thinkers, theologians, clergy, ordinary people have been thinking about for 2,000 years. We say that there's this thing called original sin, that every human person is somehow touched by and affected by sin with an inclination to sin and so forth. Well, what, what does that mean? Where do we get that? We talk about grace. We talk about, you know, being created good. We talk about God's gift of God's self, this gift of grace. Well, what does that mean? How do we understand that? And those kinds of questions, and as I mentioned, the Christological implications, we say that God became human. Well, what does that mean? You know, and so so they're, they're, they're intertwined, they're related, but they've been Questions that that theologians for 2,000 years and more, I mean, because I'm just talking about Christian theologians, but Jewish theologians before them and so forth have also been considering. Well, and so the subtitle of your book is A Contemporary Theological Anthropology. And so as we've been talking about what theological anthropology is generally, and we've been talking about the fact that it's been a an important question since really the beginning of theological conversations, now let's turn to that question of contemporary. When we say that this is contemporary, what was it briefly that needed fixing in earlier versions of theological anthropology? What changed that demanded, if you will, a contemporary approach to these questions? Yeah, I actually have mixed feelings about the inclusion of that qualifier in my, my subtitle. It was actually, I don't remember its origins, whether it was my idea or somebody else's. I think part of it is, well, let me just say this. I, first of all, your question is a good one because there are things that need to be updated, that need to be expanded, that need to be rethought about 
the human person from a theological perspective within Catholic Christianity. So that's one thing. To say contemporary means a couple different things. You know, the most operative word in the title of my book is probably actually Catholicity. What I mean by that, what is that all about? And in talking about that might answer the question of what do I mean by contemporary? So let's dig into that then. So when you say Catholicity, for particularly for my Protestant listeners, what do you mean by that term in this case? What I mean is let's go back to the Greek. You know, so my, our Protestant listeners uh, will appreciate the kind of going back to the sources of, the, of you know, ancient languages of, of Scripture in particular. So in Greek, you know, when we, we pray this creed, both Catholics and non-Catholics alike, we pray a creed that says that, that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And of course, a lot of those particularly Reformed churches kind of bend and twist about, well, we don't mean capital C Catholic, we mean lower C Catholic. Okay, great, right on. We're all in agreement about that. But then here comes the question, what does the word Catholic mean? And my starting point in this book is to take the word literally and to go back etymologically and see what its meaning is. And here I, I rely on the work, the excellent, excellent work of the late scholar Walter Ong, who for many years was on the faculty of St. Louis University. And he points out that kind of in popular context, we talk about Catholic as it's translated sort of into English as meaning universal, meaning it's just a synonym for universal. And he says that's actually not true because there was a word in Latin when the creed is being translated for universal, and that is universalis. <laughs> like there is actually universal. Catholic was a deliberate choice, and it, it's because its Greek origins combines two words, kata and holos, which means throughout the whole. And Ong's point is that universal actually comes etymologically from this notion of around one point, you know, universal, so like around the, the one. So one thinks of like a compass, like you might have in elementary school where you have a point and you have a pencil and you create a circle. So universal applies to everything within the bounds of that circle, where kataholos, Catholic, actually has a different valence. It's about everywhere, truly. It's about whole making. It's about completion. It's about affecting everything. And it's, and it's a, so it's a very, it's a very different way of thinking about theology, about the tradition, about Christianity. If it's Catholic, it is, it's, to use a favorite word of Pope Francis is it's integral. There is no inside or outside. It's everything. Well, and so that's going to speak to some of the things we're going to talk about later in this conversation. When we think about the question of anthropology and we ask, what is a human being? I think historically, and you talk about this in your book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, that sometimes we end up thinking about humanity as distinct from the rest of creation. And if we think about this definition of Catholicity, that it's an interpenetration of everything and that everything has the divine working through it in the church, we can begin to think about that in terms of the relationship of humanity to creation as well, can't we? Yeah, we can. You know, the last time I was on this great show, um, I was talking about my book that came out last year, which was a theology of creation called All God's Creatures. And that was one of the things we talked about is, you know, an element, a major theme in that book is trying to make a case against human exceptionalism, making a case against, you know, the, this, this idea that we're absolutely unique to such a degree as we have, particularly within the Christian community, to such a degree that we have neglected to recall that we are part of creation too. 
So in many ways, I see this book as a sequel to that book, or it builds on a lot of the work that I did in talking about creation in general and our place within it particularly. And that is exactly, as you mentioned, the starting point for this book, which I say any kind of authentic understanding of the human person has to take seriously our materiality, our corporeality, our createdness, our creatureliness. And one way to talk about it is many contemporary scholars have been talking about this is to recognize our animality, that we are animals, you know, and so it's not appropriate to say human and animal. We can talk about human and non-human animals, and that makes some people really, really uncomfortable. But it's also a truth of science. It's a truth of scripture and revelation that we can talk more about as well. And we will get into that right now. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Father Daniel P. Haran about his recent book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Daniel P. Haran about his recent book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, a Contemporary Theological Anthropology. Well, there's a lot to dig into in this book, and there are some aspects that are technical. And so I still want, for the sake of my listeners, to be asking some questions that will help us to to frame the conversation. One of the things that you spend a lot of time talking about in the middle of the book is the concept of the imago dei. My listeners may have heard this term before, but let's kind of dig in. What has that meant, this term imago dei? What's its definition, and what is the kind of theological importance of it? So it's super important. On the one hand, it has served primarily throughout the Christian tradition as a placeholder. This is something I tell my students when I teach a course on theological anthropology, that, you know, we, we look at the Scripture. The line comes from Genesis 1, where we are told that we are created in the image and likeness of God. But the phrase image of God only appears three times in the Old Testament, and it's in various ways that has no consistent or kind of substantive meaning. So it's not clear from the text itself what it means. There's just this declaration that we are. And and so we've actually, well, I'll say more about that in a moment. It appears as well in the New Testament, but it appears primarily to refer to Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, as the scripture puts it, right? And so Imago Dei has been, practically speaking, a shorthand phrase that we use to talk about the inherent dignity and value of all people. That's how it's been used primarily within ethical contexts within the Christian tradition, within moral theology. And it has meant lots of different things, frankly, when it comes to theological anthropology. And so, yeah, that I have a whole chapter in here on the Imago Dei because it is an important element. It's a key and consistent theme within theological discussions of the human person. And so one of the things I do is, first of all, deconstruct any kind of notion that we have, that there's a stable, classic, consistent notion, and that that notion is somehow tied to Scripture. It's true the phrase comes from Scripture, as I mentioned, but actually the meaning that has been 
often applied to Imago Dei comes from an eisegesis, which is a projection of meaning into Scripture, as opposed to exegesis, which is unpacking it. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it is mentioned briefly in the Old Testament and briefly in the New Testament, and when it is mentioned, it is given in the Old Testament scant definition, and in the New Testament, it is applied specifically to Jesus Christ. And then the 20 centuries of tradition that have come past that scriptural attestation has tried to backfill a very complex meaning into that, and that backfilling has created this notion, and we talked about this a little bit in the first segment, that when we say that human beings possess the Imago Dei, that somehow makes them special in creation and distinct from creation. And when you say that part of what you want to do is deconstruct that, is you're trying to reread the tradition, if I'm hearing you correctly, in a way that allows us to think of ourselves as part of creation and not different from. First of all, do I have that kind of yeah. move correct? Yeah, I think you're summarizing that well. I mean, y- exactly. So, you know, and, and what has been backloaded, as you said, is really an Aristotelian philosophical worldview, which is not uncommon in, in Christian history. And really, this goes all the way back to a Jewish philosopher named Philo of Alexandria, who was deeply influential on the early generations of Christian theologians. And, and he, it wasn't just him, but he was one who read Genesis and read this passage and projected into it a certain kind of Aristotelian emphasis on what does it mean to be human. And Aristotle famously said that humans are rational animals. And so the thing from the beginning there for the last 20 centuries has been rationality. A certain understanding of reason has been seen as what is uniquely human. And I want to make a point of saying uniquely as opposed to distinctively, because I do believe that human beings, the human species, is distinct, that we are not the same as snails or bats or dogs or bears or trees or rocks for that matter. But one of the things I did obviously in my last book, All God's Creatures, is try to restore a sense of inherent and intrinsic dignity and value to all creation, which I think is something that gets overlooked as a result of persistent anthropocentrism, us putting ourselves at the center of creation, us putting ourselves at the top of creation. So one of the things I'm interested in is, you know, if this has been a misreading or or a misapplication of this otherwise ambiguous term, Imago Dei, as justification for just the human person as unique, how might we understand Imago Dei, and does it perhaps apply beyond just our species too? Well, and so part of what you do to recover that is you begin to look at some more recent thinkers. In the process of that, you take us into a conversation that has been happening, I guess, at the level of seminaries and at the level of philosophers, but maybe has not filtered down into the parishes and into congregations. So help us to unlock some of what those conversations have been that you've been bringing in in the book. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think that's right. Within the academy, within seminaries, you know, at at a certain level, this has been discussed. I present three different kind of umbrella movements, as it were, in trying to make sense and study the Imago Dei. On the one hand, I talk about how there are some who want to reject the notion altogether, and they look at the ambiguity of its meaning in Scripture. It's totally other application in the New Testament applying only to Christ. doesn't really have anything to do with us. And they say, you know what, this is too problematic. It has been the source of a lot of the ills of our self-centeredness, our anthropocentrism, and so let's get rid of it. There have been others who want to redefine it. And they want to say, well, okay, so 
we do have this term, it's deeply embedded in our understanding of the human person and in theology within the Christian tradition. Let's, let's come up with a new understanding for it, but keep the term itself. And then there are others who want to expand it and say that actually there is, similar to what I was saying a moment ago, that, that actually why can't this apply to non-human animals and other creatures as well? And I don't adopt any one of those approaches. I, I think my conclusion so I offer a brief kind of constructive proposal. It's closer to the expansion side of things of the three, you know, sort of trends these days in the study of the Imago Dei. But I want to make an argument that there's a way to think of the image and likeness of God, Imago Dei, that is both inclusive and distinctive. That we can say human beings are created Imago Dei, but so is the rest of creation. And that doesn't flatten our place within it or the value of all creatures, that we are distinct, but it doesn't mean that we are absolutely unique in that everything is about us. Well, you're a Franciscan friar, and part of how you do that, if I read it correctly, was you actually went back into the Franciscan tradition, and in fact, you used a writing of St. Francis called the Canticle of the Creatures to help to make this constructive move. So tell us briefly a little bit about what the Canticle of the Creatures does and how that helps you in the move that you're trying to make. Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief. I have so much to say about that. The Canticle of the Creatures is sometimes referred to as the Canticle of Brother Son. It's been put to music in, in a lot of liturgical settings. So listeners may be familiar with the hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King, which is based loosely on the Canticle, or Marty Hoggins' more contemporary Canticle of the Sun, you know, the heavens are telling the glory of God is how that famously begins. And so there's been a misreading over the generations of the canticle, uh, what I would call watering down um, or a caricaturing of St. Francis of Assisi as this kind of lover of animals. I call it the, an effect of the birdbath industrial complex, you know. And the canticle and Francis himself are viewed as romantic and naive and poetic and, and adorable, but not profoundly philosophical or theological, but not kind of deep. And my argument is, no, no, no. There is a, a significant and profound theology at work here, one that's scripturally rooted in this sense. If we look at Genesis 2, we've been talking about Genesis 1 a lot, but if we look at Genesis 2, we're reminded that we are made ha-adama in Hebrew from the dust of the earth. And Genesis 2 also points out that all the other creatures are made ha-adama and that it's God's spirit, the Ruach Elohim, that gives life, that animates life, but that we're all made of the same stuff, as it were. And what natural science, particularly in light of biological evolution, has revealed is that's exactly right, <laughs> that we are made of the same carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and everything, is everything else that exists. And so if you, even if you look at DNA, we share a lot of the same sort of chemical structure that makes us who we are with the rest of creation. There's nothing biologically distinct about humanity. That's right. And and so if we project that, if I'm hearing you correctly, into the spiritual realm, we shouldn't necessarily say that there's something that is spiritually distinct or unique about humanity. Yeah. In, in a, well, in a sense, yeah. So part of the kind of spiritual uniqueness approach has been also a shorthand when people talk about a soul, like human beings have souls and nothing else does. And I think that's tied in part to Imago Dei. I don't get into the soul conversation much in this book, so I don't want to really get into it too much now. But I will say that what, it, what this focus on Imago Dei as exclusive has done, that Francis of Assisi and then the theological tradition that arises based on his inspiration in the, in the centuries that follow, what they don't do is say that 
humanity is needed as the intercessors for the rest of creation, that we have some kind of exclusive relationship with God that other creatures and other aspects of creation do not have. Now, there are some historical and scientific problems with that. In addition to our shared DNA, shared kind of physical, corporeal makeup, there's also this notion that the universe is way, 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 way older than our individual species. So the question is, six billion years ago, was God relating to the expanding universe? And if our answer to that is yes, then it troubles our sense of us being the priests or priestesses of creation and of the divine that we need to mediate the sacred to the rest of this creation. What that means is that so often I think Christians think of the rest of creation, non-human creation, as the backdrop to our kind of saga and salvation history. And what Paul's letters do, what the book of Job does, what Genesis actually reveals to us, just citing some scriptural examples of Paul's letter to the Romans, for instance, is that actually God has a relationship to and is, is draws near to all of creation, of which we are a part. We are a distinct part, but so is everything else. And so Francis got that. And so he uses this language of this fraternal and sororal language to talk about brother sun, sister moon, brother wolf, and so forth. And he's not being cute. He's not being poetic. He's being deadly serious. And I think that has been overlooked. And I use that as one way to talk about what does maybe a family or community of creation look like of which we're a part. And that, as St. Bonaventure will say, if all of creation is created as vestiges and mirrors of the creator that reflect God, can we actually say that there are, there's any part of creation if God is the single source of creation that doesn't image God in some way? And we'll pick that up in our next segment. But for right now, you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Father Daniel Haran. We're talking about his recent book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, A Contemporary Theological Anthropology. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Father Daniel P. Haran. We're talking about his recent book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, A Contemporary Theological Anthropology. Well, in the previous segment, you were talking about the ways in which the Imago Dei needs to be sort of reconsidered for our contemporary conversation about theology and how human beings fit into the cosmos. And you made a statement there that I want to come back to. You said that you don't get into the question of the soul very much in this book, and you don't, but you do get into, and I'm going to use a technical term here, it's a term umwelt. And what that means for listeners that are not speakers of philosophical German is world-making or meaning-making. And as we're extending this conversation now to talk about the way in which Francis and other thinkers thought about integrating the question of creation into the question of the human, we need to think about this question of human beings are not the only meaning-makers. We're not the only ones with a narrative and a story to tell. But to get there, we're going to need to maybe leave some trail for our listeners to follow us. So when we talk about a squirrel having a world, or when we talk about an alligator having a world, what are we talking about? <laughs> well, on the one hand, we don't know what we're talking about. And I think that's really important. I acknowledge that in the book, that 
you know, the, the notion of Umwelt comes from uh, Jakob von Uxkul, you know, a household name, obviously. He's, he was a, a 20th century philosopher, kind of the father, you know, very engaged in semiotics, but kind of the father of like scientific philosophy. And he influenced a lot of other people, including the, the German controversial but deeply influential German philosopher Martin Heidegger, who took this notion of Umwelt world-making, as it were, meaning-making, and applied it pretty much exclusively to the human person, right? He, he understood humanity as distinctly capable of, or uniquely capable, actually, of making sense of the world, creating world, creating meaning, it, rather than, you know, being subjects in the world, as it were, as opposed to just objects encountering other objects, which is the way he would view, you know, he talked about non-human animals, what we might recognize in squirrels or alligators, as you put it, as being what we would call sentient, he referred to them as world poor, that they, yeah, they, they were objects in the world and they interacted and stuff, but he had a deeply kind of Cartesian worldview. You know, Descartes famously thought that animals, non-human animals were just fleshy machines, that they didn't even feel pain, which is deeply troubling to think about today. Well, and I want to dig into that. So the notion that when I encounter a domestic animal like a dog or a bird, that I'm encountering simply a biological machine, that's one type of way of thinking about it. But there's something that we can then extend to that that is maybe troubling or dangerous. And that is, if this is simply a machine, then like other machines, it's there for my instrumental use. And I can treat this machine any way that I choose, and there's no ethical problem with that. And first of all, do I have that potential extension of this idea of the biological machine correct? Yeah, it's been reflected in, in the way we've treated non-human animals. You know, I, something I talk about, and I recently gave a, a public lecture in Texas where, you know, I was talking about Franciscan theology of creation, and I said, you know, it's not that, you know, all aspects of creation re, re, use, you know, they, we have to use other aspects of creation for survival. None of us can photosynthesize our own food or grow our own clothes or, or make our own houses out of our, you know, by ourselves. So we need to kill trees and other plants and animals in order to live. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but you're right to say that the problem is we have in part because of this anthropocentrism and this sense of human uniqueness, human separatism, have, even in the wake of so-called enlightenment thinkers like Descartes, viewed non-human creatures purely instrumentally. And the, the issue is there's a tension that we need to address, and I, and I tried to in my previous book on all God's creatures, with how do we balance the instrumental necessity of use of creatures with intrinsic value and dignity. And this brings us back to the world-making or meaning-making. I think the number one thing I want to emphasize is we need to not talk about the human person from a presumption of absolute uniqueness and separatism. That's the first thing. The second thing is we need to approach talking about other creatures, sentient, otherwise, whatever, you know, including things like trees, which biologists have pointed out actually have forms of complicated and nuanced communication and relationships. You know, we don't really have time to get into that here, but what I'm calling for is what, what I might describe as epistemological humility. Humility around how we know and what we know. And that what I, part of the extension of that that I want to make in this book is that we know somewhat well a lot about what it's like to be human in the world, and we don't know that very well, frankly, we know really very little about what it's like to be a squirrel in the world. 
And so that a squirrel is not capable of speaking in human form, not able to speak English or Japanese or something like that, or read or write in ways that are recognizable or communicate in ways that make sense to us, we've presumed, as Heidegger has, that therefore they are poor in the world. They lack meaning in, in the world and meaning-making or affect or moral agency or these other things that ethologists, that is, biologists who study animal, non-human animal life and behavior, have constantly been reminding us and telling us that actually we've gotten this wrong. And famously, there are examples of elephants and dolphins and, and certain primates that seem more like human beings in their articulation and intelligence and discernment and, and that kind of stuff. But what I would argue is that all creatures have a kind of way of being in the world that's uniquely their own. And we, we see examples of that. You just mentioned elephants and dolphins, but elephants, for example, grieve. They bury their dead and they return to the burial sites and they, they have memorials. So we, we see evidence of this. And even though it's anecdotal and even though we, we don't understand the complete meaning of their world and how they're thinking about that, we can imagine that there is something parallel to that, to the way that we memorialize and grieve our lost ones. But there's a consequence of this that you don't get into much in your book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, but I just want to bring out to you. That is, we can find examples and evidence that physicians, for example, in the 20th century would make statements like people of African origin don't feel pain as much as Caucasians do. So that's that's a, a dangerous extension even into the human realm of this notion that somehow other creatures exist for us instrumentally, and they don't feel the same way that we do, and they don't deserve our empathy, isn't it? I think that's right. Tragically, it's, history does show us that. I also think it's an extension of or a consequence of our discomfort. On the one hand, our discomfort around our own creatureliness or animality, and then the deployment of animality as an othering factor. So we look at non-human creatures, non-human animals, and we just call them animals and we are human. And then that gets used, that distinction, that binary gets used even within the human family to other or dehumanize, as it were, other human beings. And so I, I think what I'm calling for here is the need for a, a rethinking, a reorientation. And I, I want our listeners to know that I anchor this. This is not just like ex nihilo. I'm just not talking about this out of the blue, but but it's tied to and anchored to the Christian tradition, scripture to philosophers to theologians. Um, and I think that's really important. But a major aim in this book is to take the tradition and not just replicate the same old sort of stasis, but to rather engage it with what we know from natural sciences and social sciences and the development of philosophy. Well, and to bring it back to an earlier part of our conversation today, one of the ways that you do that is with this concept of Catholicity, by sort of going back into the history of that term and saying it just doesn't mean universal, but it means this whole notion of kind of penetrated within the whole, that that gives us a way, an anchor, if you will, of getting back into this question of how we are to understand non-human animals. And so this question of either or, like this boundary that we're sort of standing on the outside of and the rest of creation is inside that boundary, if we look instead using your kind of anchor of Catholicity, that gives us a way of thinking about the kind of world building that we do is interpenetrated into the world building of these various creatures as well. It's distinct. It's not the same, but it's not wholly different in quality. First of all, have I understood that correctly, and am I using Catholicity right in that way? Yeah, generally speaking. I think the other thing is it's not the same— what we jump to, I think, over 
the centuries is saying not only is it not the same, but but non-human creatures don't have this at all and that we're morally superior. It's a valuation that takes place. And so I, the starting point for the book is that context that you've just described for sure. But that's only one half of the book. And I know we've spent a lot of time in the segment talking about that. So I encourage people to check it out. But the second half, I moved to talk only about the human person, you know, from the theological perspective. And one of the, you know, the, the key motivations I have there is a lot of what we think about when we think about the human person today tends to come from the ethical realm. How do we live a life? How do we make choices? What is human value? What is human dignity, et cetera? These are good questions. But a lot of the conclusions to those questions are dependent on the foundation, the theological foundations of what we say a human person is. And one of the things I highlight in the second half of, of the book is that this, this is a distinctly Thomistic Aristotelian line of reasoning that Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century drawing from and engaging in very creative ways for the time, the philosophy of Aristotle, which was kind of rediscovered in the Christian West at that time, serves as the foundation. And basically we haven't, within the Catholic Christian community, haven't really changed our, our worldview. That's where the emerging personhood comes in in the title, the understanding the fuller, understanding the deeper more nuanced understanding of what it means to be a human continues to emerge through the centuries. Problematically, our reflection on the human person from a Christian perspective, a theological perspective, has been kind of stunted, has been frozen in the 13th century. And that, I think, is something that needs to be addressed. And I attempt to do that constructively there. And so if we're stuck with a, a model that is basically 800 years old, it may be due for a little bit of rehabilitation and a, a chance to really kind of look with fresh eyes at what this might mean, given the fact that we're living in a world that is so vastly different in terms of technology and communication and even our sense of who gets to be a human being in the political sphere. And we'll get into that in our last segment. But for right now, you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're talking today with Father Daniel P. Haran. We're talking about his recent book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, a Contemporary Theological Anthropology. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Daniel Horan about his recent book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood. So if we were to sum up what you would consider to be the most important takeaway for our listeners from this book, what would it be? It is this notion of whole-making, for sure, and recognizing that our understanding of the human person is evolving and emerging and developing, and we can learn from other aspects of human knowledge and science to inform our theological outlook. And that comes to a fore, I think, in the middle of my book, which is the first part of the second part. <laughs> it's very Thomistic in this way. It's the first part of the second part, where I offer 
an alternative. In the last segment before the break, we talked about the Thomistic Aristotelian sort of foundation or framework for thinking of the human person and of the world. And what I do is I, I offer an alternative, equally orthodox theological and philosophical foundation. And that is not Thomas's engagement with Aristotle, but John Dunn Scotus's alternative engagement with Aristotelian categories in very, very creative and profound ways that have not been adequately considered. So in an effort toward homemaking, I think actually SCOTUS offers us a better starting point for understanding the human person that is also true to the Catholic Christian philosophical and theological tradition. I make this case partly, you know, the major part of it has to do with a philosophical innovation that he makes called hakcheitas, uh, Latin for kind of thisness, the particularity. In other words, in answer to the question, what makes me, me, and you, you? You know, what is distinctive about individuals or particulars? And he does something very creative and innovative there. We don't really have time, I realize, on the program to get into it too much, so I want to encourage our listeners to to read it, to buy the book and read it. But chapter five, I take that foundation, you know, so I lay it out, and I say, what would three admittedly contentious, controverted issues in our understanding of the human person, in society, and in the church look like if we had a different starting point? And we had this more Scotist starting point as opposed to a Thomistic or Aristotelian starting point. So walk us quickly through what those three would be. So the first is the question of gender complementarity, this idea that there's kind of an either-or structure to our understanding of human persons as men and women. And this, again, goes back in some sense to Genesis 1 where we, where we read, you know, about how God created us in God's image and likeness, male and female, God created us. And so I'm not denying the reality or the usefulness of gender, but raising questions about gender complementarity in these absolute ways that Thomas's interpretation of Aristotle lead to, that framework locks us in, and it's created lots of different problems. So I, I talk about the inherent sexism of, of an argument that is reliant on gender complementarity and how a SCOTUS approach offers a, maybe a way around that, what I call an overcoming of the impasse. And the second thing is engaging a, a very timely issue and, and something that actually in a magisterial way the Catholic Church has not addressed, and that is the reality of transgender persons. There have been some lower-level documents in, in recent months, lower-level meaning they're not taught with magisterial authority, they're not taught universally, but they've been instructive from certain offices within the Vatican that presume, again, certain standard kind of non-dynamic classical, and by classical I mean frozen in 13th century views of the human person that rely on this Thomistic framework. And what I want to argue is that actually if we take John Don Scotus's metaphysical contributions to understanding the human person or use that as our foundation, the notion of transgender reality is not incompatible with the Catholic Christian tradition. There's a, there's a place for us to understand that rather than treat it with hostility or erasure, you know, basically saying that these women and men don't exist, that what they're experiencing is unreal, untrue. And so I'm making a case on behalf of the reality of transgender experience and persons. And then finally, the dehumanization of racism, that actually the Thomistic Aristotelian frame that is beneath, that grounds so much of our ethics and our understanding of the human person is actually been used for racist ends and has implicit or tacit sort of racialized, racist sort of presumptions. And then again, I show how I think 
a Scotist metaphysical foundation for renewed theological anthropology in the tradition offers us a different way to move forward. We have been having a very technical conversation throughout this hour. I'm worried that our readers might think that this is just a book that if they don't have that kind of technical background, they won't be able to access. What is your hope for non-scholar readers in the way that they'll be able to use this book? Well, let me say first and foremost, I I tried. I may have failed. I'll, I'll, I'll take your perspective on this. I'd be interested to know what you think, having read it. But my attempt was to really make it as accessible. It's, it's, I do deal with very, very technical things. But in a way, I like to think of this book as kind of a crossover book. I don't think it's boring. I like to think that I, I, for an educated audience that may not be specialists, may not have background in theology or philosophy, that though there are some technical parts to it, it is an accessible book. So that's the first thing. I don't want to scare people away. I think this really is something that can have, if, if you're interested in some of these questions and interested in alternative ways of thinking about the human person within the kind of Christian tradition that's still within the tradition, I highly recommend the book and, and I'm eager to hear what people think about it. I think the big takeaway for you know our non-technical listeners too is that you know, in some ways it's contained in the title. I mean, that our understanding of the human person continues to emerge, that we don't have it. It's not set in stone. It's not, we don't have all the answers and we certainly never had all the answers. And so to pretend like we did at one point or that we do, or that even scripture, which is the normative source for theology, it is our anchor and guiding principle, that it somehow conveys to us the fullness of what it means to be human is not true. And so how do we account for that? What do we do moving forward? How do we make sense of that? How do we talk about humanity in a way that is not absurd, that is reasonable, that is grounded, and that is faithful? Well, and I think also what you have done in the book, and I I do want to say that I found it to be an incredibly useful book in this regard, is you have taken this kind of technical set of questions in theology, and you have moved them, just as you've said, towards some contemporary issues that the church has been slow in addressing in many ways. And you have given a resource to those for whom these issues may be central, a way to navigate within orthodoxy is, yeah. is the way that I read it. And it, was that your intention? That is exactly my intention. And I make that clear. You know, I say in, in the introduction that including the newly canonized John Henry Newman, you know, there's there's a lot of, in our tradition, a lot of reliance on the fact that doctrine does develop and to encourage that, to not be afraid of that. And, and exactly to do that from uh, an authentically Catholic Christian perspective. Frankly, I think that a lot of the problems that the church faces pastorally and theologically, ethically in particular, things that seem to be hurdles or impasses are perceived that way, rightly so, because our hands have been tied by an inadequate theological anthropology, an incomplete, as I say in the introduction, approach to answering the question of the human person. We have asked a question that demands wholeness, that demands completeness, that demands nuance, and we've given partial answers. And so when a reader picks up this book and is using this book, your hope is that they will find hope in this book or they'll simply find intellectual stimulus in this book? I hope both. (laughs) (laughs) I I also hope that it is part of a conversation among theologians and among pastoral ministers and, and, and curious people to get us thinking in new ways or renewed ways about the human person. I mean, these are these are very important issues. Like in chapter five, as I mentioned, we're talking about racism. We're talking about transgender realities. Like, how do we make sense of this from an informed Christian, theologically sound perspective within, you know, and I think we can. 
uh, part of the the short sort of initial response we see by the church is no, 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 no. And understandably, that may be the case occasioned by a kind of Thomistic Aristotelian frame, which was really, really cutting edge at the time. And so in many ways, I want to live up to and, and be inspired by Thomas Aquinas's own engagement with the best thinking of his time, which is why he was engaging with this Aristotelian philosophical worldview and the science as they might understand science in the 13th century. I'm hoping to have done the same here and to encourage others, and this is that hope you're talking about, to encourage others to do likewise. I think theology is important. I think the tradition is important. But I also think it's important that we take other forms of human knowledge, other discoveries, and emerging insights about humanity and about the world into our theological conversation. Well, Father Daniel Horan, we've talked for an hour about this book, and we barely scratched the surface. I learned so much from it reading, as I always do when I read your stuff, but I'm thankful to get the chance to talk to you about it. I, I just want to encourage listeners to pick this up. Do not be intimidated by the technical language that we've used. It's a very accessible book. Everything is very patiently and clearly explained, and you will benefit from reading this book in terms of your conversations both within the church and I think also within just the wider world. Father Dan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. We've been talking today with Father Daniel P. Horan about his recent book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood. Father Daniel Horan is a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York. He's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, and he's a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijit. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.